0: Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Ponds, Bible teacher and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. I
1: was reading an article about prayer and I thought I'd share this with you. It reminded me about an aspect of prayer that I had totally forgotten Let me see if it helps you like it caused me to think about it here for a moment. The most unusual experience will be God's decision to put to work the person who cried out to him. What that basically says is that it's quite possible that while you're crying out to God for God to do something to answer your request, that God has given it back to you and me and says, but you're to do the work. I got thinking about that, not maybe in every case, but in some cases while we're saying, oh Lord, open up a door for us, it might be that God has opened the door because we live in a free country to speak, but the door might already be open right now. We're asking God to do this and we might already be the one that could answer that door. It doesn't mean to smash down a door that's been locked, but it might mean to lightly tap a door that might appear to be closed, but really isn't closed, which might mean this way. You might want to begin to talk to the person about a secular issue that you guys can agree on. Move it into some kind of a spiritual conversation so you move it away from just earthy things and start talking about things that make them comfortable on spiritual matters. And then move into one on the gospel and now talk about how you know you have eternal life. You might be surprised in how that door could be open. Let's go to number two. Besides our thoughts now, if we're really thinking about it, what we think about, we're going to talk about it. It's interesting when I sometimes work with college kids earlier in my, my ministry that when I'm around a college kid, and I think it's almost true about any human being, even adults, is that if you listen to them long enough, you'll know what's on their mind because that's what they'll be talking about the most. You know, out of the abundance of the heart, the Bible says, the mount speaks. So if they're talking about, perhaps, going to the beach and then they're talking about schoolwork, and they're talking about going to the beach, and then they're talking about their family, and they're talking about the beach, and then they're talking about some of the things they have to do around the house, and they're talking about the beach. and then What do you think is more on their mind, everyone? The beach is, because it keeps popping up to the surface all the time. Why am I saying that? If you become gospel-centered because of your love affair for the Lord, and you love Him with all of your heart, you truly do, and you want to tell others about the Lord, and you know their plight, if that's on your mind as you begin to say, oh Lord, open up a door, Lord, help me to be able to share the message, do you know that it'll be on your tongue that soon you'll always be kind of gospel alerted, evangelistically alerted to things that are happening around you? And that's why we say it turns into our talk, how we speak. Look at the first check mark. It says, speak with confidence. It says, to speak the mystery of Christ. Speak with confidence, to speak. Now, I thought this was interesting, as I read through this one passage, did you know that the word speak, speak, speech, three times it referred to a verbal communication around the message of the gospel? Now when I read that three times in one passage, it really struck me that part of my evangelism is not merely going to be a changed life, it's not merely going to be that I live so differently that they might come and ask me, that I'm am am I a Christian or not? It's not going to be me wearing Jesus t-shirts. It's not going to be me having five different Christian bumper stickers. It's not merely me going to be playing Christian music wherever I'm at. Here it's talking about speak the mystery of the gospel. And the issue is to those of us who know Christ as Savior. So somewhere in our commitment to Christ and our relationship to Christ is that we want to speak and engage those who don't know about Christ with the message of the gospel. So here's a question that we can ask ourselves to take an inventory. When was the last time that you and I separately engaged an unsaved person with the gospel where we went eyeball to eyeball, nose to nose, toes to toes with the precious plan of salvation? When was the last time we did that? Now, it's not to put us on a guilt trip. It's just taking our temperature. Now, some of you can go back as recently as maybe last week. Could it have been, though, that it was kind of like a called upon situation, like, I could say, well, I gave the gospel last Sunday from the pulpit. See, I'm faithful. Well, it's easy when I've got a hostage audience to give the gospel to, but it's more difficult when I'm on the bus or I'm at the beach or wherever I might be where there's unsaved people. And so I'm talking about where you and I are so much in love with the Lord that we can't help but speak the mystery of the gospel to those people. When was the last time you did that? And if it's been a long time, how humble... Can we be to say, you know, it's been too long and you're really right. I got so immersed in doing good things that are important, but as good as that was, those good things crowded out some of the other things I should be doing. I don't want to say giving the gospel is greater than doing some of the things that you were doing that God wanted you to do. But in a sense, Satan can get us off balance in doing so many teachy things, so much discipleship that we often forget about engaging the lost culture ourselves. And this passage brings us back to balance that we do need to engage the lost culture with speaking the mystery of Christ, which is the gospel. Look at the next check mark. It says to do it with correctness and clarity. Because once we begin talking to them about the message, it ought to be in a way that would engage them with the clarity of the gospel. It needs to be done correctly. So it's often assumed that we assume that our kids and our people know Christ as Savior because they talk about the Lord and they use little catchphrases. I call it Christianese, little gospelese, But in their heart of hearts, are they truly trusting in Christ alone? So let me try to submit to you very quickly. Follow along this train of thought. Because we're to love Him with all of our heart, but we're also to love Him with all of our mind. And when I trust in the Lord, I don't trust in a mystical, emotional Jesus. I trust in the facts, the doctrine, the theology that's all wrapped up in the whole work of Christ as well. So here's what we could look at. First of all, God says that we're all sinners. And every one of us ought to admit that we have missed the mark of God's perfection. It's not that we have to weep and wail and gnash our teeth that we're sinners. It just means that we have missed the mark of God's perfection, that we have sinned, and we are a sinner by nature and choice. And then we move into the area that because we're a sinner, that sin separates us from God. And so since we're separated from Him, eternally we'll spend eternity separated from Him in hell. So I'm separated from Him now as an unbeliever, if you're an unbeliever, and you'll spend eternity separated from Him. That's called death. Place is hell. But now our mind says, but I know I'm a sinner, but I don't want to go to hell. So religion will tell you, therefore you've got to be good to go to heaven. So now they'll pile on all sorts of good stuff, all sorts of material that's out there about how to live a good life to get to heaven. And yet we go back to the Bible. The Bible says, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, it's according to his mercy that he saved us. For by grace he is saved through faith, not of works, not of yourself, so you can't boast about it. We're not saved by any good deed we do ourselves. So if we're not saved by our good deeds, what happens now? Jesus Christ says, you know what? You still have to have that sin dealt with. You deal with it, you'll go to hell. Your good works doesn't help, you'll still go to hell. He says, I'll take all your sin on myself, and hence you have the cross that's behind me. That's a symbol of Jesus Christ dying there, but it's not about a cross fixture. It's about the person who hung on the cross, spilt his blood, rose again from the dead. He did it to forgive you of all your sin. So Jesus died and he rose again. Now that's his part. He continues with His part to draw us to Him. He convicts us of our sin. He brings us the message of salvation. He gets us ready. We're now ready to trust Christ. And then, by the supernatural thought, we place our faith alone in Him. We realize that we must trust the Lord. Whosoever calls upon the Lord, you've got to call upon Him. You've got to believe in Him. Now, it's not a verbal call. It's basically an acknowledgement that He is who He claimed to be. More than that now, it's now placing your complete confidence in Him. That's why Scripture says... For God so loved you and me that he gave His son. Whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have everlasting life. So I trust in him. And then he says this to me once I've trusted in him. That I can know I have eternal life. He says if you believe it, your sins are forgiven. You're my child and you can know you have eternal life. And I know that I have eternal life. That's the clarity of the message. Excuse me, that's the correctness of the message. The clarity of it is not to front load or back load or muddy up the message with a lot of human terms that if you really thought it through, it's doing nothing more than adding works to salvation. It is strictly faith alone in Christ alone. Keep it clear. Let's go a little bit further. If I'm going to talk properly, I'm going to do it with compassion. Here it says, let your speech be always with grace. And I hope that even when you're giving the gospel to someone who is maybe hesitant or resistant, that you might be able to do this, not with a smirk, but with a what? With a what? A little bit of a smile. Really care for that person. That person is really, really lost. True compassion isn't to give them the message... I did my part, chalked it up, I'm done, they rejected it, I go on to the next person. Compassion says that I'm going to suffer with that person as long as they're alive. I will do what I can to help bring them the message of salvation. If I can't do it, I'll invite them to be where someone else will give it. I will pray for them. I will listen for other opportunities. I will love them a little bit more. I will do something for them. I'll do whatever I can to keep a relationship going in the appropriate way so I can give them the gospel. True compassion doesn't love them and leave them. You're not a salesman for the gospel and you go on to your next customer. Your parish is the world. And Jesus loves everyone equally. And his love sheds abroad in your heart to everyone. And that's the compassion. Let your speech be always with grace, not with meanness or grit. And then speak with conviction. Here it says, let your speech be always with seasoned salt. Now, I like that thought about seasoned salt. But with my popcorn, I... I, I try to avoid salt except with popcorn, and I'm one of those guys that put a little bit of something on the popcorn that makes it. Sh- no, no. Earlier on in our our marriage, Carol was on this real health cook, health kick nut thing, and you, you ever get these um these air poppers? Have you ever seen those things? They're supposed to be very healthy for you, and it heats it up, heats the air up so hot that when it pops, it gives you all this heated popcorn where you need no no oil, no nothing. It's just little popcorn in this little bowl that, came, that was heated by this air. How many know what I'm talking about? How many just can't wait to have another bowl of that kind of popcorn? <laughs> uh, some of you are really healthy, I'm sure. But I can remember, in my mind, I thought, well, there's no problem, bring the bowl on and I'll put my salt on it. Have you ever tried to put salt on that stuff? It does not stick. Okay? So you have nothing but a, 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 a pile of salt in the bottom of the bowl. So I have to put something on it to make it stick. And what's better to put on it than butter? And so you put the butter and you have, "Ah, that is so good. Now I'm not saying it's good for you. I just said it was so good to do that. Well, you know what that is? That's seasoning. Now let me see if I can flip that over into presenting the gospel. Now, when you present the gospel with someone, you don't want to over-season it. I don't like stuff that's too salty. Some of you have had people's food that they just put too much salt on it. You don't want to do that. But you want to have just the amount of salt. Now, what does salt do? One, it preserves, I know that, but I think there's something else that it does. It makes you thirsty. Season with salt makes you thirsty. Carol was telling me about an article she read about the obesity of young people today. And what's happening today with young people is is that they're eating food that generally has a lot of fat in it that you put a lot of salt on it and as soon as they eat that food or while they're eating that salty fat food they have to have something to drink and generally they don't drink water they like to have something sweet you know what i'm talking about something salt you have to have something sweet oh that's too sweet you have to have something with salt and they're combining it all together and i said that's i i believe that's really where the problem is not an hour later we were out with some people And someone next to us, the kid says, Mom, I'm hungry. And the the mother literally said to the kid, Why don't you go up and order some fries and get yourself a soda? And I thought, there's a perfect combination of both of them together. And that's deadly. That's lethal. Now, coming back to this. When you present the gospel, you don't want too much salt on it, just a little bit. It makes you thirsty. When you present the gospel, you don't present it in such a way that it's dead and dry. It's not just a a list of facts about who Christ is, what he did, you better believe it, on the next person. You really care for that person. But you speak with a great deal of conviction. You want that person to know Christ to Savior. You. You're going to ask them questions. You're going to find out what is the obstacle. What would keep them from trusting Christ? Are they ready right now to place their faith alone in Christ? Don't push them, don't manipulate them, don't intimidate them. But do put salt in them. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. Although you could put a little bit of salt in their oats that might make them thirsty. Now, you don't take the position of the Holy Spirit. That holy, the, he will draw that person. But to partner with him is to ask questions to get this person to engage their thinking, to engage their spirit. You speak with conviction. And then it's our walk, how we act. Well, it says to walk in wisdom. I thought that was interesting. So you can draw a line where it says, how we speak, to act with wisdom. Here it talks about speaking the mystery of the gospel, that we do need to engage in a verbal fashion. But when we engage, it's also engaged in a life that we're walking in wisdom. That means we're walking wisely. We're walking full of the wisdom of God. In other words, we are living a life of honesty, decency, and integrity. We're living a life that is made up of purity and holiness. We're walking wisely. We're living the principles of Scripture. So when we speak, what we say has great impact. Now, in my personal opinion is, I don't know how wisely we're walking if we're also not talking. Just as much as I don't know how wise we are if we're doing all the talking and we don't have a life that backs it up. So what you have are two in one. You have the person who is genuinely, authentically a deeper person in God, walking wisely. That person will be genuinely speaking the gospel. There are a lot of people that talk about the deeper life. One way you'll know it's a genuine deeper life is how evangelistic they are. The problem sometimes is you can have a lot of people speaking the gospel and therefore you think they're very deep in God. And they're really not. They just know the message and they like to talk about it. They have the gift of gab. Maybe not the gift of evangelism, but the gift of gab. The authentic Christian that has the most results that do it out of a heart that's properly turned toward the Lord are those that want to live the right life that knows that that's the engine through the Spirit of God that will help them to speak the word appropriately to other people. And so they marry the two together. Let's go on. So it says, walk in wisdom. So if I just, do I walk generally in wisdom? Well, the answer is yes, but in context it says here, with intention. I'm to walk in wisdom toward those who are outside the faith. So it's the word intention. So I walk intentionally. So once you write the word intention there down, circle the word toward, if you will, for a moment. I'm to walk toward those people. Now, folks, it's very easy for us to live a life as a Christian, we drive like a Christian would drive. We kind of talk like a Christian should talk. We kind of live the separated life as we should. But in this passage, and it's one of the few passages, it talks about walking in wisdom not just toward other Christians for fellowship, not just toward other Christians to worship God, but in proper, properness here, we are to walk in wisdom toward those who don't know Christ as Savior. So how would I apply that in my life, all right? If God wants me to be intentional in my connectivity to unsaved people, my prayer is going to be, Lord, I know there's unsaved people around me. I know that you want me to take the first step in engaging them in some measure in a faith experience. So, Lord, open the door. Help me to speak correctly and boldly. Help me to speak clearly as I do that. But, Lord, I'm not going to wait for them merely to come to me. I'm gonna look for opportunities. I'm gonna listen if they have hurts. I'm gonna listen if they have questions. I'm gonna listen if they go through things that might cause them to question, why am I here and where am I going? If I don't know that, I'm gonna engage them in some kind of a, a relational conversation, hoping that I could take control of that conversation to begin to spin it towards the gospel. I'm not doing it apart from the Holy Spirit. I'm allowing the Spirit of God to lead me, so that's my Spirit-led witnessing. I'm going to let the Spirit guide me in what verses to use. I'm going to let the Spirit guide me to know how to open and how to close, but yet at the same time, I have to use my natural lips and tongue and brain to do this. But I'm going to do it intentionally to try to connect to them. So some of you have a limited amount of time with people that are in your life right now. Some of you have a short time. I don't mean that you're going to die or they're going to die, but some of you have a limited amount of time before you'll be called upon to disengage from that people group that you have. And so my question is, Is are you to the point in your Christian walk with God that you'll walk in obedience to intentionally connect with them with the gospel? And I can't tell you how to do that, where to do that, when to do that, I just need you to know that in your spirit, between you and God, you work that out so you'll be intentional as you walk toward those who are outside the faith in wisdom. Then it says to do it in promptness, to do it promptly, redeeming the time because you don't know how much time you have left. You don't know at any moment God may call you home, he may call you to the hospital, he may call you to another field of service. You have a limited amount of time, so buy up the opportunity. Look for that opportunity. It's better to be too soon than to be too late. Don't wait for the fruit to fall, don't try to rip it off the branch, but at the same time, you might want to tap it a little bit to see if it's ready to release. So redeem the time. And then act with answers. Notice what it says here, that you may know how you ought to answer each one, how you ought to answer, that you may know how you ought to answer. Let me see if I can give you two practical applications. One is how you ought to answer them. In other words, do you need to be tough with them, do you need to be tender? Do you know how to really frame that response? Do you really understand their question? How you should answer them? Obviously with mercy and grace and commitment and consistency and that you stay as long as that person will allow you to engage in that conversation and leave the door open to come back, how do you answer that person? But there's also another application. How do you answer them when they ask you a question you don't know the answer to it? Well, there's a couple of things that you can do. First of all, what you can do is that if you're engaged in a conversation with them and they ask you a question about something you have no clue, they might ask you, did Adam have a belly button because he didn't have a mother? How do you answer that question? You figure that out. Now, you have a question you know the answer to. Here's the most appropriate thing you can do. You go to that person then and you respond this way. You know, that's a very good question. I really don't know the answer to that question about whatever that was, but here's what I'd like to do. I would like to write your question down. What is that exact question again? You get out a piece of paper and you write it down. You make sure you have their name and phone number if you don't already have it. You make a commitment that you're going to find the answer or to begin begin doing some research. Invite them to do it with you if you want. But you get the research and tell them you're going to come back to it. Do you know the very first thing that you'll be telling that person by that very act? Here's what you're going to tell them. You're telling them that this is probably the very first time that this person met an honest Christian. Because so many Christians, when they don't know something, they bluff their way through it. They come up with an answer that sounds pretty reasonable. It's kind of like answering through the flesh rather than through an accurate answer of what God has to say. They're meeting a Christian for the first time. Here's the second thing you're doing. You're letting that person know now that you're willing to research this and that you're you're secure enough in yourself that God has an answer somewhere and you're going to come back to them. And that gives you two opportunities now to communicate the gospel. Who knows, but maybe the Spirit of God will work a little bit more in that person's heart and at the next visit he'll be ready to trust Christ. Or he may come up with five more questions. Now what does that do for you personally? For you personally, it's never a sin not to know the answer to a question the first time you're asked. So now what happens is you've got to dig a little bit and that increases your Bible knowledge. And Once you have more knowledge, it could help you get a closer relationship with the Lord and that'll help you for the next group of people that you witness to. Some of us stay at a certain level of Bible knowledge because we never are challenged with our existing knowledge to know more. So we just think we finally arrive. We don't really say that, but we don't go any further than what we've done. But those that are out there connecting to the unsaved community or engaging people that want to talk about biblical things, our knowledge will often increase. Or we don't want to be around them any longer. We hang with our, our friends that don't want to talk about God. And we never really get to know them as well as we could. So we really want to know that. Now, let me give you a little promo here for a second. I know you think this whole message is an infomercial for this. It's not. That should not be or could not be engaged by us with the gospel. So if you ever think that I could never talk to that person, I don't know how to talk to a boy or girl, I don't know how to talk to a man or a woman, I want you to know that this passage says that we know how to answer everybody. And so what God has done today is given us an opportunity to learn how to work with boys and girls in Sunday school, how to help other people, but we need to be able to be giving the gospel to as many people as we possibly can. And so folks, I want to really encourage you with that thought. I'll end with this little story. It's a true story. It was put together in a newspaper called The Times Reporter in a place called New Philadelphia, Ohio. They reported about a celebration that occurred in the big city of New Orleans. This is in 85 before Katrina and all of that. What happened at this celebration was it was at the end of a summer and about 200 people showed up at the municipal swimming pool to celebrate that in the city of New Orleans in 1985 that there wasn't one person who drowned. Out of the 200 people that were present, 100 of them were certified lifeguards that were celebrating the quality of the work that they have done. And this is what the article continued to report. Then they said as they were packing up and leaving, they noticed that at the bottom of the deep end of the swimming pool, fully clothed, was an individual. They took Jerome Moody out of the deep end of the swimming pool only to find that he had drowned in the midst of a celebration of 200 people with 100 lifeguards that were right there in the presence. Now that is a tragic situation. But as I look at our own life, that we here on this island, as we celebrate whatever other church might be doing in Christian groups to reach people for Christ, if for us for just a moment that we might be only 100 lifeguards that are here, But there are people that are drowning in their hurts and habits and hang-ups. They're drowning without Jesus Christ. And some of them will drown right around us, and we were a lifeguard that we knew them, we experienced some bit of connectivity to them, but we did not engage them with the gospel. And so, as your pastor, I call all of us together as one family that we would raise the bar on our own evangelism that we would know that God sovereignly brought people into our life and continues to do so, as well as brings us to people so that our new relationship with Christ could be experienced by our new relationship with unbelievers. And I just pray with all of my heart that the flame of evangelism would not flicker out of this church. I pray that we would not have so many celebrations of activities and we forget to get dirty for God in the area of evangelism. Do you know at least five people personally who are unbelievers? Answer that as a family. What trials and challenges do these unbelievers face in life? Answer that as a family. Do you believe you can have a role to play in sharing Christ with them? What specific things can you do in order to share Christ with them? It's between you and the Lord and what your family can do. What kinds of barriers are in your life that could confuse An unbeliever in his search for the truth. And what practical things can you do to overcome these barriers? Now folks, it's not you pulling yourself up by the bootstraps to make this happen. It's by you having a love affair with Christ and allowing that love that he has for them to compel you, move you, and equip you to go do that job with them.